The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity and this privilege to gather together to study your word this morning. We pray that as we study it, that you would help us to understand these things. We appreciate all the principles that are there because they give light to our lives. They give us the wisdom we need to make the decisions we must that we may move forward in our Christian life and mature spiritually. So, Father, above all things, we take time from our busy schedules because we know that the most important thing in our life is our relationship with you. In order to have that relationship, to develop that relationship, we take the time to study your word. For there you give us truth. These are words of life. And so, Father, let us focus our attention now on these truths, these doctrines, that we may apply them in our lives and grow spiritually. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Beginning down in verse 11. Now we need to always take a few minutes to review just to get our... Remind ourselves of what's going on in our study, what the background is and what the context is, because I don't know about you, but I've slept since last Sunday, so I don't always remember what went on since then. Now, the main theme of this epistle has to do with the importance of grace, the grace of God. The grace is unmerited favor. Grace means that God does all the work and man simply receives it. Grace is opposed to legalism in all of its forms, and legalism is one of the most subtle and one of the most insidious dangers facing Christianity. And I think at some point, many of us face that danger, either in our own lives, because that happens to be a trend of our sin nature, or with, with people we know. In the church at Galatia, after the Apostle Paul had spent some time there teaching them and leading them to the Lord. He was followed by a group of people that were called Judaizers. Now, the reason they're called Judaizers is because their focus was to bring these new Christians back under the Mosaic Law in some form. So they taught both a soteriological legalism, which has to do with the doctrines of salvation, that salvation was faith, plus keeping the Mosaic Law, specifically circumcision. And they taught a form of sanctification legalism that also added works, faith, plus the Mosaic Law in order to grow spiritually. So both salvation was by works and spirituality by works. The issue was, what is the role of the Mosaic Law now that Christ has come and died on the cross for our sins? This was a major issue in the early days of Christianity because most of the believers came out of a Jewish background. 
what do you do with the old Mosaic law and all of the mandates in the Mosaic law? Now, in order to get our orientation, let's review a little bit what we've learned about the Apostle Paul. First of all, Paul was saved when he was approximately 30 years of age. Short time right after that, he was on his way to Damascus and he went out into Arabia and the uh, regions around Damascus where he spent a short time, maybe just a few days or a few weeks, nothing longer than that, reorienting his thinking in terms of what he had uh, learned about Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Then he returned to Damascus where he had three years of ministry. During that time, he began to fulfill his spiritual gift as an apostle to the Gentiles, and he had a ministry both among Jews there and among the Gentiles, uh, specifically the Nabataeans. These were a group of Arabs from the surrounding, uh, surrounding region. But both groups ultimately became enraged and hostile to the gospel and conspired together uh, to take his life. So he had to flee for his life, and the believers there in Damascus lowered him by a basket over the wall at night, and he escaped to Jerusalem. The first trip to Jerusalem was where he met Peter and James. He spent only 15 days there, and he spent some time uh, discussing a few doctrinal issues with Peter, but he makes the point in these, these verses that he did not get his information from the Jerusalem apostles. This is one of the major issues, the challenge to his apostolic authority. And so he spends the last part of chapter 1 and chapter 2, as we've seen, defending his message that the gospel that he received did not come from men. It does not have a source in either a group of men or in any individual man. So that negates all concepts that Peter was the head of the church or any, any notions like that. Paul got his gospel directly from the Lord Jesus Christ and he's using all of this to reveal or to give evidence of his uh, apostolic authority. His first trip to Jerusalem was only 15 days and he left there, went back home to Tarsus where he spent 14 years ministering in relative obscurity. The next time we see anything about, about Paul is when uh, Barnabas comes and recruits him to help him with the ministry in the church at Antioch, which was primarily a Gentile church. Now, during this time, what was going on in Jerusalem? Well, remember the Lord's command in Acts 1.8 that the disciples were to take the gospel to Judea, Samaria, and Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world. Now, that fits a scene. They're not supposed to just stay there in Jerusalem and keep the gospel message under wraps and under a bushel, so to speak. They are to go out. They're supposed to be missionary activity. But they didn't understand it. They still got problems with legalism. Their background is heavy ritual and religion. And one thing you always discover, when people come out of a background that has been saturated with legalism, it's very hard for them to come to grips with the principles of grace. They may talk a lot about grace. They may use grace terminology a lot. But they don't always understand it because they have been... Uh, influenced so much by this legalistic background. And that was the problem in the Jerusalem church. And the only thing that got them out of Jerusalem was what? The persecution that arose after the, the uh, martyrdom of Stephen. The persecution became so intense that they had to leave Jerusalem. So that forced them out. That's how God used persecution in the early church was to force the believers to carry out the task that God had assigned them. So it forced them to go out into Judea and Samaria and then eventually into throughout the Roman Empire, and that's the, generally the outline for the whole book of Acts, is to see how God forced them to fulfill the mandate of Acts 1.8. So while uh, 
All this is going on while Paul's up in Tarsus during this 14 years. A church gets started in Antioch, begins to grow, but the church in Jerusalem remains ingrown and oriented towards legalism and fails to fulfill their task, and they continue to have problems with the Mosaic Law. And about this time, this is about probably two or three years after the crucifixion, Peter, who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, finally uh, has to have a little direct revelation from God so he'll get the point about grace and the Mosaic Law. And this is given in Acts chapter 10. Now, we don't have time this morning to go through all of Acts chapter 10. It's rather lengthy. Uh, description there, but if you want to, you can turn there and we'll just sort of summarize it down through chapter 11. Now, one of the things that you should always notice in Scripture is when God the Holy Spirit takes a lot of time to go through a situation, then it's something important that we need to pay attention to. And what has always impressed me a little bit about this episode is it starts in Acts 10 and goes all the way through Acts 11. You have the, they tell the story of what happens, and then Peter Peter, you have a preface and then the actual events with Cornelius and then Peter comes back to Jerusalem and tells you the whole story all over again. So you get this story two or three times in three chapters. The Holy Spirit's knocking on your forehead and saying, get the point here. You have to understand the principle of grace that the Mosaic Law no longer has any validity in the church age. So let's just summarize what happens. Well, who are the cast of characters? First of all, there is this Gentile, this Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius who lived in Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was a, a man who, was, who had exercised positive volition at God consciousness. See, we've talked about witnessing some, and in witnessing, one of the questions that usually comes up is, well, what about all the people that haven't heard? Well, you can sidestep that question um, when you're witnessing or you can answer it. Sometimes getting into answers is a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, just extraneous information that's, not, that's just a distraction to the gospel presentation. But the basic answer is God creates every individual with volition. Now, at some point in their life, they become aware that there's something greater than them. They look around, and Romans 1 says that the nonverbal testimony of the creation is so powerful that it is enough to, that everybody is aware that God exists whether you're an atheist, agnostic, whatever you may be later in life, at some point in time, the evidence is clear to you and you have to make a decision. And that decision is either, yes, there's something greater than me and I want to know exactly what that is, or it's negative, um, I don't really care, I'm just going to worship this tree or I'm going to worship this animal or I'm going to worship my ancestors or just go with the flow of whatever is happening in my culture. Uh, but if you're positive, then at some point, God, out of his justice, fairness is going to make sure that you get the gospel, that that person is going to have a clear presentation of the truth. And Cornelius is a classic example of that. Here's this Gentile. He's described as a God-fearing Gentile, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household, gave many alms to the Jewish people. So he's probably, he's not a proselyte. He hasn't converted to Judaism, but he's very interested, which indicates that this man has been positive to God from the point of God consciousness and wants to learn some truth. And we're going to see how God, in this instance, supplies the truth. Now, one of the interesting things throughout history is that, that we don't know how God has communicated the gospel to various peoples throughout the entire world. But there are enough very tantalizing hints in history 
that I believe by the end of the first century the gospel had gone throughout the world and might possibly even have had some inroads over into North America where, where it was rejected. Um, most people don't know this, but one of the motivating factors in much exploration during the Middle Ages, uh, even the Vikings carried uh, priests with them and would communicate the gospel to the people they discovered in Iceland and Greenland and even in North America, but there was no, neg no positive volition, so nothing ever took root. But um, that was one of the things Leif Erikson was very concerned about getting the gospel, taking priests somewhere and starting churches. So there was this missionary effort there throughout history. And, of course, in our secular classrooms, you never hear anything about that. So most people think it never happened. But just because absence of knowledge doesn't mean absence of event. So Cornelius exercises positive volition and, and in this particular instance sends an angel to tell Cornelius that God has heard his prayers and will answer them. Now this is something that is very, very unusual. Do not expect this to happen today. In fact, if you know anybody who sees angels, they've got some real problems. Either they're uh, schizophrenic and they're having hallucinations, hearing voices, whatever it may be, or maybe they're demon-possessed, but this is not the way God normally operates during the church age. This was how God operated. Only rarely in history did angels appear to men, and that usually at critical turning points in God's plan for human history. And it was in association with that turning point. So this is a very pivotal event in relationship to Cornelius and his household, so it calls for extra measures, and God sends an angel to let Cornelius know that something is going to happen. At the same time, the scene shifts to Peter. Peter's on the seacoast at what is now called Haifa. Then it was called Joppa. And Peter is very hungry. Peter wants something to eat, and so we see that his help uh, is preparing a meal. And while they are preparing the meal, uh, Peter decides to go up onto the roof and pray. And while he's up there, he falls into a trance, and there's a vision. This is Revelation. Once again, very specific revelation. Now, this is not some subjective impression because there is very specific content given to this revelation. It is propositional. The Holy Spirit gives him specific directions in this. And um, Peter applies that and everything is validated by the circumstances that unfold. So, starting in verse 9, we see the description of this. And he sees this huge tablecloth come down. And in this tablecloth are all manner of animals. Some of them are clean. Some are unclean. Now this is a designation given in the Mosaic Law and really goes back prior to the Mosaic Law because uh, Noah took uh, uh, seven of every clean animal onto the ark and of every unclean animal onto the ark. So the distinction between clean and unclean is very ancient and it has to do with its ceremonial or ritual significance. It doesn't have anything to do with, with diet per se or health or hygiene or anything like that. It had to do with certain aspects of Old Testament ritual. Clean animals were animals that could be used as sacrifices. Unclean animals were animals that could not be used as sacrifices there were animals that should not be eaten or something like that. Many of those were animals that were scavengers. For example, catfish, shrimp, lobster, crawfish, 
anything like that that's really good to eat that you couldn't eat back then. Not because they didn't have the right hygiene or know how to cook it, but because as scavengers, they ate what? They ate dead things. And see, if you read the Mosaic Law, there's this constant emphasis on even if you touch someone that, that had died, you were ceremonially unclean and you could not go into the t- temple or ta- the tabernacle for seven days and then you had to go through a certain sacrifice before you did for cleansing related to becoming ceremonially defiled. In other words, all this is an object lesson to teach that sin and the penalty of sin is death and this separates man from God. So all of these sacrifices and all of these regulations in the Mosaic Law all had to do with teaching principles related to a believer's relationship with God. So the point was ritual. Well, this tablecloth comes down and Peter is offered take and eat. And Peter says, no, 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 Lord, I, I follow the law and I would never eat any of those things. And says, this happens three times. And the voice says, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. In other words, this is no longer an issue because of what? because the cross has occurred in human history now. The cross has occurred, which is what all of these things looked forward to. So now that the cross has occurred, and, and in Romans we learn that Jesus is the end of the law, that the Mosaic law no longer has any validity in the new church age. Now, this had to happen three times because Peter's a little slow, but the rest of us are just as slow. How many times do we have to hear certain principles of doctrine in Bible class before we finally wake up and say, Oh, that applies to me. I need to do that. And so often we come and we're sitting here in Bible class and we hear something and we think about somebody else. Oh, I just wish they were here to hear this today. They really need to apply that in their life. So Peter, that's one thing we all identify with in Peter. He seems to be just as slow as the rest of us and keeps making, making the same mistakes. So Peter uh, finally gets the point and then while he's, uh, he's there the messengers from Cornelius arrive and they take Peter to Caesarea where Peter tells Cornelius that God has made it clear to him that there is no longer to be a distinction between Jew and Gentile. See, under the Mosaic Law, there was this strict division between Jew and Gentile. And the Jews could not have anything to do with the Gentiles because that would make them ceremonially unclean. So they kept this rigid, rigid distinction between them and as a good Jew following the Mosaic law, you wouldn't even have dinner. You wouldn't even go have a cup of coffee with the Gentile at all. There was no socializing with the Gentiles because they were unclean and that was just something that was forbidden. So especially by the Pharisees, they were very legalistic. So now Peter has gotten the point and he comes and he has dinner with Cornelius and his household and he gives them the gospel, makes a very clear gospel presentation and they believe. Now that brings us down to about verse 44. This is a very important passage. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. So obviously they all responded positively at the point of gospel hearing and entrusted Christ as their Savior. That's the verse 43, gospel presentation. And then verse 45, And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed. Notice the point of circumcision. Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. This is going to be a very important point. Every Jewish male was circumcised. So this is a theological issue, not a health issue or anything else. It has to do with their recognizing their covenant relationship to God. 
and they're amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit has, had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. So what we have here is what's called the Gentile Pentecost because the events here mirror what took place on the day of Pentecost. And what you have is the baptism with the Holy Spirit or by means of the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to get into a very detailed analysis of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in a couple of weeks in our study of... Uh, Am I losing sound? Okay, the light's back on. We can move ahead. All right. In a couple of weeks, we're going to hit critical passage in the Gospel of John where I'm going to take the time to do a detailed analysis of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and we'll probably have to look at the whole tongues issue. So that's going to be very, very important. But what we see here is that this is not indicative of, the, of a normal series of events. Because what's happening here is under the leadership of Peter, the Gentiles are going to be experiencing something that is identical to what took place at Pentecost. What's the background here? The background here is that when you read the book of Acts, what is critical is that this book is a book that is transitional in nature. The second thing you have to understand about Acts is that it is a historical book. You never develop doctrine from historical literature. Historical literature may illustrate doctrine, but it is never to be your source of doctrine because historical literature simply relates what happened. It does not tell you what is to be normative. It tells you what happened. And what happened in Acts is you had three situations. On the day of Pentecost, the church age began, and God the Holy Spirit uh, baptized all the believers there instantly. Then we get over to about Acts chapter uh, 7, I believe, and you have Peter and John going up to Samaria. And there you have the Samaritan Pentecost. The same kind of thing happens. The Holy Spirit comes down on the believers there. Now, why is that happening? It happens under the leadership of Peter speaks here. Peter and John are involved here. And what the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were part Jewish and part Gentile and they were completely rejected by the Jews. The, the hostility and the, the uh, uh, ethnic or racial prejudice towards the, um, the Samaritans was just incredible. So what this had to show was that the same event under the same leadership occurred with the Samaritans, so you don't have two different groups. You don't have a Jewish group and then a Samaritan group. They're all one and the same. And the point is that you have this separate event that happens at the beginning with the, with the uh, Samaritans in order to show that they are completely united with the original group at Pentecost. The one and the same thing. The next time you have this happen is with the Gentiles in Acts 10. And here the person involved is Peter again. So this shows that the Gentiles partake of the exact same thing. So at the beginning of each of these groups, just at the beginning, not with anyone after, you have this happen. And the fourth time it happens is with the, the, the followers of John the Baptist in Acts 19, and they represent all Old Testament saints. So what this shows is that the church is unified. There is only one body of Christ. It's not made up of different groups. And ethnic distinctions, which were important in the Old Testament in relationship to ritual, distinction between Jew and Gentile, is no longer significant. And that's the thrust of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For there is no longer any Jew nor Greek, male nor female, because those distinctions were important in terms of uh, ritual in the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament 
uh, slave or free. In other words, economic distinctions, sex distinctions, and um, race distinctions are no longer valid in the church age. Every single believer is a priest to God and is on equal footing in terms of their spiritual life and their relationship to God. That's the point of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which has to do with the identification of the believer. It's a what's called a real baptism. There's no water involved. It's not experiential. It's something that is that occurs the moment of salvation. The only way you know about it is if you read the Scriptures and learn about it. It's identification with the person and work of Jesus Christ where the believer is placed into the body of Christ, body of Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. This is what takes place here, and they speak in tongues. And tongues was a sign of judgment to Israel, of the fact that coming judgment was coming because of their rejection of God and their negative volition. And this was announced in a prophecy in Isaiah, and Paul refers to that, that prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14 to show that this was the purpose of the, the gift of tongues. It was a sign of judgment. And even though it didn't occur everywhere, everybody heard about it. For here we have, they, they speak with tongues and they praise God. And so Peter says, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as, as, as we have. And so they are part of, of the body of Christ. Now what happens is everybody hears about it. When you come down to um, the next chapter, chapter 11, Now the apostles and the brethren who are throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So even though speaking in tongues only occurred in a few places in a few times, it wasn't prolific, people heard about it. Word spread. And that was testimony to all the Jews that God was doing something and this was a sign of divine judgment, coming divine judgment on the nation Israel. So once Israel was judged by the Roman legions in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed and the nation was taken out under the fifth cycle of discipline, from that point on there has been no legitimate use of the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is not a sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If we had time to go through all the passages and acts, the order of events differs. In fact, in Samaria there is no speaking in tongues. There's just the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And so it's not consistent. This is not setting up a normal pattern. It's just saying what happened in order to demonstrate the unity of the body of Christ. Now, we've gotten off track there talking about that. and We need to get back on, on focus here. The issue here is the relationship of the Mosaic Law to the church age. Now, after Peter does this, uh, and there, the, the, goes to uh, Caesarea, he has to go back to Jerusalem and report, and they're up in arms about this. But here we see that Peter has tremendous courage against their legalism. Verses 11 and, fo- 11, 1 and following. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, notice that, those who were circumcised, those, it's emphasizing they're still holding to the old Mosaic law and all the old Mosaic rituals, that they took issue with him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So he's being challenged by these legalists. What does Peter do? Does he crawfish, back off? Not at all. He stands his ground and he explains exactly what happened and rehearses the whole situation for them. And the conclusion down in verse 18 is when they heard this, he gave an objective report of how God had uh, instructed him to do this and what was going on. They quieted down and glorified God. 
Now this is background to Acts, I mean to Galatians chapter 2. Because what happens is Acts 10. This is the order of events. Acts 10 and the first part of 11 down to verse 19. Then we have the growth of the church in Antioch. This is the new church that develops. It's a Gentile church. And it's going to overshadow the Jerusalem church, which has become ingrown and still has problems with legalism. As the church in Antioch grows, um, they hear about it in Jerusalem and they send Barnabas up there to find out what's going on. And Barnabas sees that God is doing a tremendous work among the Gentiles. So Barnabas goes and he gets uh, Saul from Tarsus. And Saul, who is the Apostle Paul, comes with him and they begin their ministry in Antioch. And then at the end of, a, uh, of about a year, there, the, the prophecy of Agabus comes true and there's a famine in Jerusalem. So Barnabas and, and, and Paul are sent down to Jerusalem to carry a gift of money to help the Jerusalem believers during this crisis. It's an economic crisis during this famine. And that was Paul's second visit to Jerusalem and his second meeting with the um, leadership of the church there. And that was what we covered last week in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Well, after they returned to uh, Antioch, Peter decides to come up. Peter's going to come up and he's going to check out the situation in Antioch. So these are the three major events in terms of chronology. The, Peter learns that, that God has done away with the Mosaic Law and he learns a lesson about grace. Then you have the growth of the Antioch church, which is primarily Gentile. Uh, Barnabas and Paul are among the, major t- the, the, the key teachers there. And then there's the famine visit to Jerusalem. And then the fourth thing in terms of this order is Peter goes to Antioch. Now this sets up a very important, pivotal event that's the background for this this chapter and this is what Paul has been driving to because he's giving this to show that his authority is not only recognized by Peter but he has to really chew Peter out in front of everybody because the issue is, is the importance of grace alone. Salvation is based on faith alone and Christ alone, not faith plus work. So let's look at Acts 2.11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. And when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Now we're just going to probably get that far this morning. So let's look at verse 11. Peter's confrontation, I mean Paul's confrontation with Peter. Now one of the interesting things is here he calls him Now, in the Greek, this is spelled like this. That's K-E-P-H-A-S. There's no C in soft sound in Greek. Interesting thing is, when the K goes over into Latin, it becomes a C. Now, a C is one of those funny letters in English. You know, it's a we got a funny language. C doesn't have any sound of its own, does it? It either sounds like a K or it sounds like an S. I always wondered why we had a C. I mean, when I was a little kid, I said, why do we have a C? 
Why is that necessary? So the correct pronunciation of this is really Kephas. But when it, when, a lot of times when, the, when this C in Latin, which was always pronounced like a K, when that came over into English, people began to pronounce it with a soft sound. So you have people calling the Boston Celtics. Well, any historian knows they're the Celtics. You know, they're not. They're Celts. They're not Celts. I mean, people, English people just screw up all the languages all the time. So Kephas comes, just, just a little something to wake you up this morning. Or see if you're awake. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is a public confrontation. Now, a lot of times people get into false doctrine or they screw things up or they create some kind of problem in the congregation or you find out that there's a Sunday school teacher that's teaching something that's not quite right and it's not really the thing to do to take them in front of the congregation and ream them out. That is not the normal way to handle it. But there are some times when that's exactly what you have to do when the person is making a public statement and gets into uh, false doctrine in front of everybody then it's time to make an issue out of it and stop it right there before it goes any further and creates any more problems. And that's what Paul had to do here. There had to be a public admonition because of the seriousness of the problem. But one thing we ought to notice is how Peter responds. Peter responds in grace. Peter shows some maturity here. He hasn't been reamed out like this since the Lord said, Get behind me, Satan, when Peter was, was challenging the Lord. So, Peter knows that he is wrong and he has the maturity and he has the grace orientation to be relaxed in the situation and evaluate himself honestly. But what happens in most circumstances? Somebody starts to correct you and how do you respond? You immediately get defensive. You, get, you react with bitterness and antagonism. That's a sign of arrogance. The sign of true humility is the person who can relax in the midst of criticism, listen to it, weigh it. If it has value, accept it. If it doesn't have value, reject it. But see, most people are so self-absorbed that as soon as somebody starts to criticize them, they just immediately fall apart, lose all orientation to grace, and they're out of fellowship and they immediately get into a whole host of mental attitude sins. And that's a sign that they've got real problems with arrogance. And so if that's true for you, then you need to really take a look at that and apply some doctrine in those areas of your life. Well, Peter shows some true humility here. See, humility doesn't mean you're a doormat. Humility means you recognize your role and your position in the plan of God. And you recognize the authority of God and the authority of doctrine in your life. And so you're always going to be evaluating yourself by that absolute standard of Bible doctrine. Peter doesn't let his ego get in the way and he responds correctly to the Apostle Paul. Now, Cephas, before we got sidetracked there, is the Aramaic word for a rock. It is the Aramaic equivalent to the Greek word uh, Petros for, for Peter. Now, this recalls the fact that uh, what happened in Matthew chapter 16 when the Lord said to the apostles or the disciples at that time, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, You are the Son of God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded to him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, his birth name was Simon 
Bar-Jonah. Jonah means John. Bar is the Aramaic for son. So his real name is Simon Johnson. You didn't know that, did you? But the Lord gave him a new name. And he said, I also say that you are Peter. And upon this rock... Now, there's an interesting wordplay here in the Greek. It goes from Petros to Petra. Petros is like a small rock or a stone, a chip off the block. Petra is like a large, unmovable block. And so when he says this wordplay, he says, I say to you that you are Peter, a small stone... And upon this rock, this large stone, what is the Petra? The Petra is the principle that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It says, I say that you are Petras, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. This rock upon which he builds the church is the foundation stone that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the foundation. He is not talking about Peter being the foundation of the church. He is talking about the principle that Peter recognized as being the foundation of the church. And he says, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've all heard about Peter having the keys to heaven. But what is this talking about? This is an image that has to do with with being able to let people into heaven and letting people out of heaven. And what is that? What are the keys? The keys refer to the message that Peter just recognized. The keys to the kingdom of heaven is the message that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And that the apostles were given these keys, this message of the gospel, and whatever they would bind on earth would be bound in heaven. Something that was bound on earth were those who rejected the gospel. Whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And that was those that accepted the gospel message. So the issue here, binding and loosing, has to do with acceptance or rejection of the gospel message. And Peter is not the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church, getting it's an odd morning, isn't it? First the sound goes out, then the lights go out. Then we get a brown out and it just glows in the dark. Well, we've had our share of interesting things this summer, haven't we? All kinds of odd things. Anyway, just to keep our attention, keep us from falling asleep this morning because it's a little warm in here. We have to stay on our toes. Okay, so Peter is called Peter after that. From that point on, Peter is referred to as Simon Peter. The Greek word emphasizes the point that the Lord made. Paul, and this is the only place where Peter is called Cephas or Kephas. Paul is using this because he's just getting Peter's attention here. here. Because he's calling him Cephas because he's not acting like Peter the rock because he's violating a doctrinal principle here. So Peter is going to call him Cephas to emphasize the fact that he has gotten away from doctrinal purity. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. And here we find another interesting Greek word, anthistemi. Do we have light? No, we don't. Just a little glow. What's going on? What? Oh, the bulb is burned out? Well, it's affecting this too. 
I just have a glow up, you know, a warm glow up here in the pulpit this morning. There's no light. You know, what does John say? Men love the darkness rather than light. Well, I just have kind of a warm glow this morning. Maybe I need to spend more time rebounding or something. Do what? No, I turned it off. This this light's on, but it's just a warm glow. You can't tell it's going on, so. And we'll check it out later. Anthistemi. It's a combination of two Greek words. Histemi, which means to stand, and anti, which means to stand against. And it means to oppose, to resist, to withstand. It means sometimes to confront someone face to face or to oppose someone. And Paul has to set his heels in and he is going to oppose Peter face to face because he stood condemned. He stood condemned on the basis of his very own behavior. For, verse 12, prior to the coming of certain men from James, These are legalists who came up from the church in Jerusalem. They still are tied into the Mosaic Law. And and apparently Peter had been in Antioch for some time and he was enjoying the fellowship with, um, with the Gentiles there. Prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. And this indicates that this had been a standard practice of, of, um, of Peter, that he had continually eaten with the Gentiles. He had discovered lobster. He had discovered good fried catfish, uh, crawfish etouffee. Oh, he was enjoying eating all those wonderful dishes. And uh, now he has to quit eating with the Gentiles. And this is a problem with legalists is they always put a subtle pressure on everybody else. You get some strong legalist come into a congregation and before long, everybody else starts backing off of whatever they were doing because they're afraid, oh, they might offend them. They might upset them. And see, this isn't a weaker brother issue. The Scriptures recognize the law of love, that if there is a weaker brother, and that refers to an immature believer who hasn't been around long enough to learn the truth, and so something might be an issue in his life. That's the law of love, so you just don't engage in that activity in the presence of that weaker brother because they have a problem with it, and it would cause them to stumble in their growth. Now, Dr. Ryrie used to say that in order to put a stumbling block in front of somebody, they have to be moving. The trouble is, there's a lot of people out there who aren't moving anywhere in the spiritual life, and they're dead set that, that if you're a Christian, you don't smoke and you don't chew and you don't go with girls that do, and you don't go to movies, you don't dance, and you don't do this, you don't play cards. I remember the first time I ran into some Christians uh, from up north, they were from the Midwest up north, Michigan, and they didn't think that if you were a believer, you could even watch television or movies or anything like that. And that, that was a... Because I had never run into anybody who, uh, who thought that was, had anything to do with the spiritual life. I mean, you couldn't even watch a news broadcast. Cause, I mean, that might, you just might see something in a commercial that would cause you to stumble. Well, you have a volition. You don't have to stumble just because you see something in a commercial. So these were legalists. And uh, the Bible says you don't kowtow to legalism. Jesus never did. So you always had the pharisaical mentality. And when they come along with their legalism, you confront it and you chat. See, there we go. Sit down and have a face-to-face confrontation. But first of all, make sure you have all the facts. Secondly, we're back. We're back on. Okay, secondly, after you get all the facts, 
then you make a, a clear decision and you present all the evidence that you can. Peter was able, because this was a public situation, to present all of the evidence that he had. But sometimes there are private situations, and especially in a church context or congregational setting, you can't present all the evidence. All you can go by is the recommendations of the pastor and the deacons and allow them to perform their function of administrators to do the investigation or the groundwork in whatever the situation is. And there are times even, these are rare, this is not a normal type of situation, but there are times when the, uh, the deacons and the pastor have to make recommendations to the congregation and you have to go with their recommendations simply because to bring out all the facts and all the details may create a lot of problems for people's privacy and just generate more problems than it will solve problems. So there are times when that's necessary as well and you just have to... ...is so great that it's splitting the congregation into two camps, verse 13. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. So now you have the Gentiles on one hand, the Gentiles on the one hand who are for grace and recognize that God has included them in the body of Christ. And on the other hand, you have the Jews who think that, well, this inclusion in the body of Christ must be based on the Mosaic Law. And his influence is so great that it even sways Barnabas and he gets caught up into the hypocrisy of legalism. Now, this word for hypocrisy is a very interesting Greek word, and we would put it on the overhead, but we're still glowing up here this morning. It's from the Greek word, it's soon hupakrinomai. Hupakrinomai, where we get our word hypocrisy. Hupakrisos is the, is, the, um, is the noun form. Soon hupakrinomai, to be, uh, uh, to act in sincerity with someone, to someone you couldn't trust someone who acted one way in one situation and another way in another situation. And that's exactly what the Lord says here, that those who get caught up in this kind of legalism are hypocrites. They're two-faced. They, they knew, the, knew the gospel of grace and the issue of grace at one time, but now they've lost it. They have fallen into the trap of public opinion and they're trying to please these legalists who have come up from Jerusalem. They had forgotten the principle of Proverbs 29:25. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Verse 14. But when I, that is Paul, when I saw that they were not straightforward. Now this is another interesting Greek word. They were not straightforward. This is the word orthopedusin, where we get our word orthopedic. And an, and an orthopedic is a doctor who deals with bones and straightening the bones. And it has to do with walking in a straight line. But when I saw that they were not straight, I have to look at a couple of other important doctrines, and one of which is the, the whole issue of the Mosaic Law. Let's just summarize this. Well, we can't put it on the overhead this morning, but we'll cover it in about five points. Point number one. The Mosaic Law can be divided into three sections. Section 1 has to do with the Ten Commandments. In some ways, that's like a preface, like the preamble to our Constitution. 
the Ten Commandments are for believer and unbeliever alike. The Ten Commandments were never designed to be a way of, of uh, living for the spiritual life. They were never designed to be a way of salvation. The Ten Commandments were, were guidelines for the law of the Old Testament. Now, what was going on in the Old Testament? You had, you had a nation, a brand new nation that had just come out of slavery in Egypt and they were going to be formed into a new nation. Well, what do you have to have to have a nation? Three things are important. Number one, you have to have a group of people. Number two, you have to have uh, a, a, a place, a land for that nation to exist. And number three, you have to have a body of laws to regulate the function of the people within that nation. So out of Egypt came the Jews. They are your, your people. They're on the way to 